Hi, I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, and this is Your Own Podcast, a podcast for the Ontario Animal Health Network, providing quick and handy tips for veterinarians on the go. Today we're joined by Dr. Jeff Caswell, pathologist at the OBC with a special interest in bovine respiratory disease, as well as Dr. Joanne Hewson, internal medicine specialist at the Department of Clinical Studies at OBC. So for our final and third installment of our bovine respiratory disease podcast, we're going to be talking about patterns of disease that you might be seeing on postmortem when you're examining uh, an animal that's um, died of bovine respiratory disease, or maybe otherwise. So thanks very much for joining us, Joanne and Jeff. Great, Great to, to be, be here. All right, and then next, do you want to uh, kind of give us a review of the patterns of respiratory lesions? Yeah, so this could be a little bit confusing because I think if you ask five different pathologists, you'll probably get seven or eight different explanations of the patterns of lung disease. Um, But but I tend to keep it um, tend to keep it fairly simple. Um, And and for me, the patterns that 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 we'll talk about are upper respiratory lesions, cranioventral bronchopneumonia, interstitial lung disease, embolic pneumonia and pleuritis, so five categories of, of respiratory lesions. So the first of these we talked a bit about already, uh, upper respiratory lesions, uh, IBR would be the classic example, um, but we also see uh, lesions as a result occasionally of parainfluenza virus, noxious gases, those would be rare events. Yeah, clinically, um, I'd also chime in that cellulitis and abscess formation secondary to trauma, such as following treatment with a balling gun, is something I see fairly commonly as an upper respiratory tract problem in cattle. So we can recognize upper respiratory lesions if we pay attention to the larynx uh, and the trachea when we're when we're doing the postmortem examination. The second category would be cranioventral bronchopneumonia, and I think many of us are familiar with that. We recognize it as firmness and reddening of the lung tissue affecting the cranial and the ventral areas of the lung, and those lesions are often quite well demarcated from the uh, dorsocaudal, more normal lung tissue. So we see several forms of Cranioventral bronchopneumonia, but by far the most common form would be that caused by Pasteurylacea bacteria, which are Mannheimia hemolytica, Histophila somni, and Pasteurella multocida. And we really can't distinguish those three pathogens just based on the gross examination. So if you if it's important to identify which bacterium is causing the lung disease, then we need to sample the lung and submit it for bacterial culture. And there are some vaccines that are available for some of those agents, correct? So it would be, that would be when it would be kind of important, right? At a herd level? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, when you're doing a necropsy in an outbreak situation, uh, the more information you can have about what pathogens you're dealing with, uh, the better chance you have of minimizing disease in the rest of the at-risk animals and in planning your you know, future management of that herd. So you're right, there are certainly vaccines that uh, can be quite effective against some of these pathogens. And uh, if you're not already giving them, having a positive diagnosis on postmortem would potentially prompt you to change your management on that farm. So for sampling the lung in cases of bronchopneumonia, then um, for culture, we would usually recommend sampling three areas, and for histopathology, three or probably five areas of lung. And to do that, you want to include both a, a range of the abnormalities that you're seeing, if you're seeing different kinds of lesions within the lung, 
but you also want to include normal lung tissue. So in terms of lesions, we generally avoid abscesses because they don't give us very useful information, and at least a couple of those samples should come from the leading edge of the lesion. And by that, I mean the area of consolidated abnormal lung that's close to the more normal lung. And we think that that's the, the more recent uh, lesion to develop and a good place to find the primary pathogen uh, in, these, in these cases. Just a quick note about packaging the samples. Whirl packs are the best thing to pack the fresh samples in, and the um, and then obviously got appropriate formalin to formalin to tissue ratio. We certainly in the lab we get lots of samples in Ziploc bags and all sorts of strange containers. So it's better if you if you can call ahead and get your whirl packs in advance. That's always better because it seems to contain everything a little bit better. Ziplocs are for dinner, and whirl packs are for samples. <laughs> Good advice, Melanie. <laughs> So that's our common craniventral bronchopneumonia caused by Pasteurylaceae bacteria, uh, but there's a few things that can be confused with that, and one is aspiration pneumonia. Aspiration pneumonia uh, often has a craniventral distribution, but characteristically it's more focal or at least unilateral, uh, whereas the lesions of Mannheimia hemolytica, for example, are more or less symmetrical or affect both sides of the lung. And then secondly, the lesions of aspiration pneumonia, in addition to being more focal, are often uh, have a, often have a green discoloration, a lot of necrosis within the tissue, and have quite a foul smell because of the anaerobic bacteria. So we should be able to identify those cases of aspiration pneumonia at postmortem. Yeah, knowing the clinical history and any prior treatments is helpful too. I mean. Knowing whether the animal was force-fed or had an esophageal feeder, uh, I find has often helped guide me clinically in determining when aspiration pneumonia is present. And so passing that information along to the pathologist, if it's not you doing the necropsy, I think is important as well. We love to get a good clinical history. <laughs> and then the second differential diagnosis that, that you can confuse uh, with uh, methymia would be Mycoplasma bovis. Again, it causes firmness of the cranioventral lung, just like in other bacterial causes of pneumonia. But the really characteristic feature is that in Mycoplasma bovis, we get these multiple foci of caseous necrosis within those lesions of consolidation. So those are circular foci. They're sometimes only a few millimeters diameter, but they can be bigger up to a centimeter or they can be very large and affect almost the whole lung lobe so quite variable in diameter and on cut section often they're dry and crumbly and white uh, so often we can tell these mycoplasma lesions from the foci of necrosis that we get in cases of menheimia because the latter the menheimia lesions uh, are usually irregularly shaped rather than circular they have normal tissue strength rather than the friable texture of mycoplasma, uh, so we should be able to distinguish those to some extent. So in the cranioventral lesions of bronchopneumonia, multiple circular foci of crumbly necrotic material are typical of mycoplasma bovis pneumonia, whereas irregularly shaped areas of, of necrosis that retain the strength of the normal lung uh, are more typical of what we see with menheimia. And then often these calves with mycoplasma often also have uh, fibrinous or suppurative lesions within one or more of the joints or in the soft tissues around the joints or even in the tendon sheaths 
leading up to the joint. Yeah, so some of the clinical clues that you may be dealing with mycoplasma um, antemortem would be in animals that have a more insidious onset of clinical signs of respiratory disease, later occurrence of the signs after arrival at the feedlot, and uh, things like concurrent signs of lameness or a head tilt from otitis are certainly clues that, that make me think mycoplasma could be playing a role in disease. The, the fourth pattern of bronchopneumonia then would be uh, cranial ventral bronchopneumonia that contains lung abscesses. These can look a lot like mycoplasma from the outside, but on the cut surface, they're filled up with fluid pus instead of that dry, crumbly, necrotic material. But really, this might be a bit of an artificial distinction because we think there is a continuum between those dry, caseous lesions of mycoplasma and the fluid lesions of lung abscesses, such as from Truparella pyogenes or actinomyces or Arcanobacterium pyogenes, so it's not always possible to distinguish so uh, the two as, of these. They start off as one, and then they kind of morph into, and then yeah. mycoplasma sneaks in there. Exactly, or we can have mycoplasma lesions that also has Truparella, and then it and then it develops into an abscess. So there's a in the unluckiest of animals yeah. continuum of lesions in the unlucky animals. Okay, so that's. Bronchopneumonia, and I think most people are more familiar with bronchopneumonia. The second pattern of lung lesion then would be the interstitial lung lesions, and these I think are a lot more confusing for people, but our viral pneumonias would be the one of the major causes of these. So bovine respiratory syncytial virus, uh, and less frequently coronavirus and perhaps parainfluenza virus can result in interstitial lung disease. The gross appearance here then, again, can be of a cranioventral lesion, so superficially it can look like bacterial pneumonia, but the lesion is a little bit different. The cranioventral lung is rubbery, it's firmer than normal lung, and it's collapsed or atelectatic, but it's not as firm as the consolidation that we see in most bacterial pneumonias. And the dorsocaudal lung then has interlobular emphysema, but if you feel those individual lobules, they again have that rubbery increased texture uh, that we talked about in the cranioventral lung. So in these cases then often, the whole lung is firmer than normal, has a rubbery texture, uh, but the cranioventral part of the lung is collapsed or atelectatic, while the dorsocaudal part of the lung uh, has interlobular emphysema, probably because of respiratory distress. Okay, so it sounds like the difference between viral and bacterial pneumonia can be pretty subtle, just like it can be in the living animal. So as we've heard, often further testing, such as virus isolation, antigen testing, or paired serology are needed to clinically differentiate them antemortem. Here, the, the pathologic distinction between viral and bacterial pneumonia is also difficult without pursuing histopathology plus viral and bacterial cultures, too. Yeah, that's right. So, so in some cases, we can get a good sense that it probably is a primary viral pneumonia, uh, but often viral and bacterial infection go together, and they're detecting that underlying viral pneumonia really requires laboratory testing. The second pattern then of interstitial pneumonia would be a generalized interstitial pneumonia, and here the lungs are firm. Uh, they're often very heavy because of edema, but the key is that that lesion is present throughout the entire lung. It's either uniformly diffusely firm or it has a lobular checkerboard pattern throughout the uh, entire lung. And here we're talking about diseases like toxic lung injury, like 3-methylindole toxicity, 
uh, sepsis, so we have a bacterial infection elsewhere in the body, and the lung is the distant target of that infection. Uh, rarely in Ontario, Ascaris suum or Addictiocollis larval migration, as those larvae migrate through the lung, they can cause a diffuse interstitial pneumonia. And then we might also confuse it with pulmonary edema from heart failure or from anaphylaxis. But it's important also to recognize that feedlot cattle have a well-recognized syndrome of diffuse interstitial pneumonia, that we don't really understand the cause of that disease, but yet it is a, a condition that feedlot cattle die of uh, and, and has characteristic gross lesions. So Jeff, you've, you've mentioned these generalized interstitial pneumonia causes, and, and I'd like to chime in that they all appear very similar clinically as well. So knowing the case history and, and the housing of the animals, the management, and any recent changes in feeds or, or changes in pasture access are very critical to figuring out what you're dealing with when you run into these lesions on post-mortem examination. So the fourth category then of lung lesions would be embolic lesions, and these are relatively straightforward, I think, to understand. Here we're dealing with multifocal abscesses or nodules that are present throughout the lung, uh, and if you see that, uh, if it was a small animal, you might think about metastatic neoplasia, but the same appearance in, in a in cattle usually is the result of an infectious condition. Here we have to look for sources of infection elsewhere in the body, uh, the heart valves in cases of endocarditis that's showering the lung, the liver uh, in, in feedlot cattle with liver abscesses, uh, or jugular vein or, or other parts of the body. Yeah, and the, the chronic pneumonia that develops from this low-level showering of the lung with emboli from distant lesions, such as the liver abscesses that you described, Jeff, is certainly easy to miss. Clinically, you may see the animal because of dullness, or fever, or a drop in production in dairy cows. Uh, and with careful examination, you may detect harsh or abnormal lung sounds. More commonly, though, the signs are subtle enough in these cases that they're not detected until a massive embolism occurs, causing an acute onset of respiratory distress. Or if lung abscesses develop, they can uh, progress and erode through a pulmonary vessel, and the animal may acutely develop pulmonary hemorrhage, which you may see clinically as epistaxis, or coughing up of blood uh, prior to death. Yeah, and we occasionally see those at, at postmortem as well, with massive hemorrhage within the lung, and if we look closely, then we can find other abscesses within the lung uh, that tell us that that's been the source of it. The final pattern then of respiratory disease would be pleuritis, so this is inflammation restricted to the pleura, and in cattle we're really talking about histophilus somni uh, or hardware disease as the two major differential diagnoses. So again, histophilus somni, we recognize that that causes bronchopneumonia, it causes pleuritis, it causes iTeam, it causes polyarthritis, but usually one animal, often we just have one of these uh, manifestations. So we can certainly get animals dying just of pleuritis as a cause of histophilus somni infection. Usually these lesions are quite dramatic. There's spectacular mats of fibrin covering the lung, and we can certainly see fibrin covering the lung in severe cases and acute cases of bacterial pneumonia, but the difference is that in histophilus somni pleuritis, the underlying lung tissue is soft and it's not consolidated like you would get in a case of 
pneumonia. It may be red and, and collapsed because of the pleural fluid, uh, but the underlying lung tissue uh, is not inflamed or, or consolidated. So the inflammation is just restricted to, to the pleural cavity. Hardware disease, uh, of course, usually causes peritonitis, but if that nail or the wire happens to penetrate the diaphragm, it can cause either pericarditis or pleuritis, and usually this is more of a suppurative lesion, uh, and we see lots of pus, but, but we can get uh, a dominance of, of fibrin in some cases as well. Generally, in those cases, we uh, should expect to see some inflammation or fibrosis on the serosal surface of the reticulum where the nail or the wire uh, has come through. So that can be a good clue to look more carefully for a nail or a wire within the, within the pericardial sac or within the pleural cavity. But, but that, foreign, that foreign body uh, can be quite difficult to find. Just taking a step back to think about the living animal with pleuritis, we can also detect pleuritis quite easily through careful lung auscultation and chest ultrasound examination, as I was talking about before. So in terms of pleuritis, when you're doing lung auscultation, you may note a change in the intensity of the lung sounds as you move ventrally. The sounds become more distant or even uh, no longer audible in the area eventually where there's pleural effusion. The other things you might hear are pleural friction rubs. When there's fibrin on the lung surface, as you talked about with histophilus somni pleuritis, uh, when there's a lot of fibrin and not a lot of effusion, you can hear the surface of the lung rubbing against the inflamed chest wall, and it sounds like sandpaper being rubbed on rough wood as the two surfaces rub together. Um, I should comment too that pleural friction rubs can also be mistaken for a severe heart murmur. So taking the time to, when you identify these sounds, to actually watch the flank and uh, try and correlate the sounds you're hearing with respiration rather than with the heart rate is helpful to differentiate where the abnormal sound is coming from. Joanne, you make it sound easy, but probably my <laughs> skill with a stethoscope is one of the reasons I became a pathologist. <laughs> well, I think with auscultation and with ultrasound exam, which is the other test we use when we're assessing pleuritis, uh, there's a lot of practice involved to try and, and get good at these skills. You know, you don't just jump in the deep end and expect to suddenly be an Olympic swimmer. You've got to practice and you've you got to develop your expertise over time for sure. I want to finish up with uh, just two specific pathogens. One of these is BVD. So we recognize BVD as important, not only as a cause of mucosal disease, but important because it predisposes to bacterial bronchopneumonia. But it's important to recognize that we, we think that, this, that BVD does not by itself cause significant lesions in the lung. So, so BVD infects the lung doesn't cause a viral pneumonia by itself, but rather predisposes to bacterial, uh, bacterial bronchopneumonia by allowing those bacteria to survive within the lung and cause disease. But when we get cases where BVD has predisposed to bacterial pneumonia, often in those cases there's no evidence of mucosal lesions. So often in those cases we cannot see esophageal ulcers or Peyer's patch necrosis that would indicate BVD as an underlying cause. So really, if you want to look for evidence of BVD predisposing to bacterial pneumonia, you need to do laboratory testing to identify BVD virus in that group of calves. 
And then lastly, tuberculosis. Of course, we don't see tuberculosis very often at all in Ontario, but it's an important disease to be aware of and it's an important disease to recognize. So the classic uh, lesion is the granuloma or the tubercle that is usually a, that can be a soft white mass, but often in cattle, uh, it has a, a caseous center and often there's a gritty texture to that caseous material as a result of mineralization or calcification of the lesions. These tubercles uh, can be single within the lung or they may be multiple or you can have no lesions within the lung at all uh, but identify uh, tuberculous lesions within the lymph nodes, within the bronchial, mediastinal, or retropharyngeal lymph nodes. So again, that's not going to be a common disease, uh, but it's one that we should keep in mind. Yeah, and Jeff, I think it's important to uh, to pick it up on postmortem from also the fact that it's really hard to pick up clinically. These these animals, when they do get affected with tuberculosis, can have very slowly progressive uh, clinical disease, and they're easy to miss. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're picking it up on postmortem, it may be the first time anyone's detected a problem with that animal. The earlier you can pick it up, though, uh, the better, certainly because of the opportunity for transmission to other animals, given the, the prolonged progress, progression of the disease. So there you have it, bovine respiratory pathology. In a nutshell. <laughs> a very big nutshell. A really big nutshell. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we'll, we'll be posting um, the Veterinary Clinics of North America link uh, so that you can, if you wanted to read up on this in print, then you can, uh, then you can read the review article there um, and any other, um, any other handy links that we might have. Thanks very much for joining us, and uh, have a great day. Thanks. Thanks, Melanie.